So that's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse sorry, 11 to 25. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a, as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is, for it is commendable if someone bears up and bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing, something to, for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die, die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been made, for you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, for now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank you, Andrew. And do keep that open. Uh, let's um, say a prayer, shall we? Father, we pray for um, good concentration for us all, uh, that we'd be able to really focus on what you've uh, got, what's in front of the pages on us. Uh, we pray that the message of uh, this bit of one Peter just would uh, you'd speak it afresh into our lives, into our church's life. We want to be a church which is like Jesus, which is following Jesus faithfully, which is filled with your Holy Spirit. So work in us and amongst us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know whether you watched it, but yesterday, Mrs. Markle became the Duchess of Sussex. There you go, how about that? Uh, had that privilege conferred on her as a result of becoming a member of the royal family, all very nice. But of course, as was pointed out in the sermon, the bigger privilege was that two young people fell in love a while back and started their marriage life together. And that's the wonderful story that we were all sort of, our hearts were engaged with, wasn't it? The story of, um, well, you know, 
of things working out for them at the moment and we pray for the years ahead and I think if you are a fan and you spent the whole of yesterday getting terribly excited and then watching it and getting even more excited then turn that into prayer for them because they need it like any young married couple need it and turn that into prayer for them in the days ahead well how about you and me are we ever likely to become members of the royal family do you reckon Depends on which royal family you're talking about, doesn't it? Are we likely to become members of the British royal family? I I don't give myself any chance. I don't know about any of the rest of you. But look at chapter 2 and verse 9 of 1 Peter. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's what it is, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how God treats you now, if you've done that. Us now, as a gathering, as a church. We, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, our royalty, that's what it says on the page, doesn't it? We belong to the royal house, not of Windsor, but of heaven. God's people, forever. And just like with Meghan and Harry, the best bit of the story is not the privileges and the titles like we've got on the page, but it's the love story. It's the discovery of how much God loves you and me. And then receiving his Holy Spirit as we focused on in our Pentecost service and discovering that love within us and starting to reflect it and become the people that we're always meant to be, people who live well in the world, people who are like our God, people who love like our God and love him like he loves us. We may not be wearing an enormous veil and have a diamond tiara, but we should gasp, nevertheless, at the privilege and the love that is conferred onto us. And this section at the end of it, so we're going to go back to the beginning of it in a minute and see sort of where that goes in terms of practical application in daily life. But the end of it returns to just, just the privilege and the cost that it was. I don't know how much the royal wedding cost to stage, a I don't know, staggering amount of pounds. But this costs more than money for you and me to be royal princes and princesses. Look at verse 25. Our situation is the sort of before. What were we like? the silliest animals, sheep, who were always going astray, always getting into trouble, doing the wrong thing, going away from what's right, going from safety into danger, and in our case, into sin. But going backwards in the verse order to verse 24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And do you see the swap there at the end of verse 24? By his wounds, you have been healed. By his whipping is the sort of idea there. Horrible. And if you remember seeing Mel Gibson's film when that came out a few years ago, that really put on you in your... It was just horrific. And that was just the physical suffering that Jesus went through. We can't portray with cameras the agony of 
hanging there before the Almighty God who he'd always loved and he'd always known the love of the Father. And then our sin, cutting him off from the Father who he'd known for always and him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. It was our sin that he was taking on himself. That's the swap. His wounds heal you and me when we put our faith in him. That's the love that buys your salvation and mine. More than all the pounds and dollars and all the rest of it in the world. It's uh, drawing on Isaiah 53, isn't it, this section? Verses 5 and 6, if you remember it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the love that changes the world. It's not just an inspiration for us to be more loving, although it is. It's salvation from eternal spiritual danger of meeting God unforgiven on that judgment day. Salvation that is open to the whole world and we call ourselves and our neighbours and everyone we know, let's put our faith in Jesus. He's the the saviour. He's the one who loves us. He's the one through whom we become a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And then we live it out in our lives as we follow him, as we fix our eyes on him and on the Father, even when that means suffering and hardship. So two applications are the main thing that we've read about this morning. Uh, One is about being citizens who glorify God, and the other is about being workers who glorify God. Let's look at the citizens bit, that's the longest bit. And it, it, it shows how... Just as Jesus lived for the glory and praise of the Father, he lived for an audience of one, so as you and I do that, we will be brilliant citizens of whichever nation we're in, this nation at the moment, and we will point others to him. It starts with an instruction, doesn't it, verse 13? Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. Submit means knowingly set aside what you feel like doing or what you would choose if you had a free choice and live under the rules that are set by someone else. In this case, uh, by those who govern. Now that's not something that you find easy or I find easy. I know that because we're all descendants of Adam and Eve and we're all rebels by nature. They rebelled against God, eating the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. All of their descendants inherit the rebellion We don't like the idea of anyone being an authority over us, actually. Not even God. We're all rebels by nature. So you don't need to teach children to disobey their parents. They just do it. Uh, Just ask any secondary school teacher or even a primary school teacher nowadays and you'll discover an awful lot of their time and energy is just on crowd control and trying to manage the classroom, let alone trying to teach them anything. And yet God's people are called to submit to those in authority. Notice from verse 13 why we're told to do it. For the Lord's sake. That is the key to making any sense of this. For the Lord's sake. Because he says so. Because he wants that for us. 
and as a motivation because of all he's done for us, that actually it's not too much for him to ask from us. Now notice the context that Peter is saying this in. He mentions a couple of times a chap called the emperor. Peter's living in a context, in a world, which is under the heel of Roman power, which is persecuting Christians. And he says, submit to the authorities. And gosh, in a modern Western democracy where we've got a bit more freedom, not masses more freedom, we've got a bit more freedom, we haven't got an army kind of sitting on our heads every day. And so he's not saying submit to the government if you think it's any good. Submit to the, uh, submit to the authorities if you voted for that party. He's saying submit to the authorities, whoever they are, even if they're a conquering army, do it for the Lord's sake. That's quite a stunning thing to say, isn't it? So Christians, we, we, we submit not because we're, we feel like it, not because we're submissive sorts, you know, we're terribly dormatish, we Christians. It's not saying that. It's not even saying submit because if you don't, you're going to be punished. It's saying submit for the Lord's sake because he wants to, his people to live in the world in, in a particular kind of revolutionary way. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are now different types of people. We're, verse 11, foreigners and exiles in the world. We don't fully belong here because as well as citizens of whichever country we're in, we're citizens of heaven. We have dual citizenship and we're part of a revolution. It's called the kingdom of God. Jesus brought it and when we put our faith in him and start following him, then actually we live different lives because of him. And we know that God is the ruler and the owner in both kingdoms. Both whichever we happen to live in right now and the kingdom that's going to last forever. So Christian submission to the authorities of the here and now is worship. Because we recognise that actually God's in charge of it all at the end of the day. It means that you and I, we can look a king, a queen, a government official, a policeman, or even a traffic warden in the eye and say, I submit to you, I honour you, not for your sake, but for God's sake, for the Lord's sake. I honour you because God owns you. I honour you because God's given you that job to do. And uh, he's raised you up for the moment and given you the leadership you have. So for his sake, for his glory, even if you're rubbish at doing your job, but we don't maybe say that out loud, he's given you authority in this world and I honour you. For his sake. And I'm going to encourage you to do your job as well as you possibly can do it. And you see, that's, that makes sense of, of our campaigning and our protesting, doesn't it? It brings humanity and dignity to those activities as we need to in this community at the moment and in the years ahead. The people we're calling to account, they're not sort of aliens, they're not sort of subhuman or animals or kind of different from a different planet, although that sometimes people talk about them as though they are. No, they're put there by God. They're just human beings like us. And we call them to do what God raised them up to do and to do it well and to do it properly and to do it with justice and fairness and and so on. Even if we did vote for someone else or we'll be jolly well campaigning next time to vote for someone else, we encourage the people we've got at the moment to be the people they ought to be. 
We submit to the, for the Lord's sake. That's the Christian attitude to authority, even when power is abused, even when the government's less than honest. Think of what Jesus said before Pontius Pilate. He looked at the guy who, has, who was about to sign his death warrant, and he said, um, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And we should have that attitude, that confidence before the Father that means that we can look authority in the eye. It shows the limit of human authority. Jesus obeyed his Father, God, even when the authorities abused their power and nailed him to a cross. And so too, we Christians, Christians that Peter was writing to, being persecuted for their loyalty to God by Rome, our submission to the authorities, we will only submit as far as Holiness allows us to submit. If people ask us to do things which are not holy, which are displeasing to God, we won't do them. We won't follow them. We'll just have to take whatever fine or prison sentence they impose. Now, as far as I know, this week no one's going to send you to prison for being a Christian, so let's get practical. What does submission to (coughs) to the authorities look like for you and me on an average week? Well, it applies if you drive a car, doesn't it? I'm always quite challenged by that. It applies if you... uh, fill in a tax return or if you've got to pay the rent or the council tax on time. It applies, well, to those next door when it comes to school and living under the authority of a school institution or any other institution, the the hierarchy that's put in place at work to kind of function. We should be working in those contexts, living in those contexts in a way that submits to the authority for God's sake, even if your boss is needing some help and you need to pray for that boss. You want to live in a way that Jesus lived as a revolutionary, a different way, being like Heavenly Father in the midst of the reality of life. Perhaps as you get older, it's not so much that you are at work or are um, out and about. It's just, it's an attitude, I think, as you get older that you just think, oh, you know, nothing's as good as it used to be. It's a sort of cynicism that soaks in and there's a danger as you get older of becoming grumpy old men and grumpy old women and always criticising, never giving credit. Oh, you know, it's just terrible, isn't it? Life nowadays. Always grumbling, never, never really praying, never showing and giving it that, 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 demonstrating that hope that, yeah, the world's, you know, messed up by sin, but there's a saviour and there's a new world coming. So whatever party we voted for at the last election, we should pray for Theresa May and her government as they try and lead us through this incredibly complicated Brexit process. God's purpose is his people submitting to the authorities. And notice the bigger story of what's going on with that. Verse 12, the verse before, the one we just looked at. There's such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Actually, it's all supposed to point to him. He's got a much bigger agenda than the laws of England or any other country in the world. He wants people to know him. And as the people who already know him live differently, it points, like Jesus did, to Heavenly Father. So citizens who glorify God, and briefly, just to close and see this second section from verse 18, workers who glorify God even if, as was some of the case for some of the people Peter wrote to, they were slaves. And you may read that and think, gosh, you know, what's slavery got to do with me going to work in the week? 
apart from a bit of banter that we say we're all slaves maybe. Um, have we got slavery now? Surely we've abolished that and the world is a better place for it. Well, there's, uh, there's two parts of that answer in terms of there is modern slavery and we probably should do a session on that, the way people are trafficked and abused, uh, even now, even in London, even in our neighbourhood. Um, but in terms of most of us, it's, it's helpful just to understand there were two types of slavery in the Roman world. There were slaves who were prisoners of war, who were conquered and forcibly removed into slavery in the sort of unjust way that people were in the slave trade between Africa and the Caribbean and the Americas. They had no choice. They were pressed into slavery and just totally wicked. Um, There were other people, though, who um, financial reasons meant that they were bankrupt and they sold themselves into slavery. And there's an awful lot of similarity between their situation and the situation of a modern employee. Let me ask you, if you uh, go to work uh, tomorrow morning to earn money, why do you do it? Is it just sheer love for your job? Or is it because there's going to be bills arriving and rent to pay and a mortgage maybe? It's that, isn't it? It's not because, you know, you have a sort of personal devotion to your company and your boss and, and the business, or, or maybe it is, some days. Um, it's because actually we're in a situation where we've got to go to work. It's just how things are structured if we're going to be able to pay the bills. So, the thing that's going to keep us sane and make us the people God wants us to be in the workplace is the same sort of attitude uh, in work as we've got in general society, which is to do good even if the boss is a nightmare. Um, It says that, doesn't it, in uh, verse 18, in reverent fear, submit to yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Skipping down to verse 20, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, it's commendable for God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you. Leave an example for you to follow in his steps. And so it is that the world today has some incredibly beautiful spirituals that came out of the awful um, slave trade from Africa to the Caribbean and uh, to the Americas because people who were trafficked in that way discovered in the gospel something revolutionary that gave them a dignity and a hope that was denied them in society but was given to them in the Lord and they knew it and they knew it deeply and they sang about it and it's profound. The revolution starts in our hearts when we discover the Jesus that the gospel tells us of, discover that he suffered totally unjustly and therefore whatever we have to face on a Monday morning or a Wednesday afternoon. Well, Jesus has been through it, and so we can take it, and we can follow, and the dignity he gives us enables us to look that unjust boss in the eye, that 
inconsiderate, unfair, irrational boss and show dignity and poise and Christ-likeness and point and pray for that boss to find in Jesus Christ the forgiveness of his or her sins and the resources to change to be the person he or she should be. And do you see this pattern is the pattern for us as a church. We become a servant church because we realised we've been served by none other than the living God and his son Jesus. And that gives us not only this incredible new status that we're royal, we're priests, we're, we're holy people chosen by God, beloved by him, we discover and experience his love. We receive his spirit into our hearts and into our midst that the spirit is with us in a, in a particular way when we gather. And so the overflow in our lives is that uh, through the week we're citizens who glorify God, we're workers who glorify God, and as a church we, we serve our community. We're a church which glorifies God as we follow this pattern. Verse 12 to finish. We live such good lives among our colleagues, our neighbours, that though they accuse us of doing wrong for believing what the Bible says about certain forms of aspects of identity and sexuality, they accuse us of doing wrong for believing what the Bible says, but they see our good deeds that God enables us and inspires us to do, and they glorify God. On the day he visits us and we pray in these days as well as others come to know him too.